are looking at today the end, at least in terms of our study, of our examination of the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And when we pick up today, this is, this is rough stuff. I, I probably should do a little bit of explanation at the front in this sense. If you're with us for the very first time, we're really glad you're here. It's an honor to have you with us. Um, but you're in for some maybe tough stuff. So hang in there. Uh, it's only 45 minutes, so you'll be okay. You'll live. Uh, it's not going to kill you. And in fact, it might save you. So that would be a good thing, too. Um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, and Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. I want to focus for a second on the word enter. It's uh, in the Greek, in the Aorist imperative tense, and that simply means it demands an action. It's not an option. It's not an invitation. Even as Christians now, we've gotten into this inviting people to come to Christ. Well, it's not an invitation. It's a command. It's choose this day. It's come. It's command form. We don't even really share our faith, although that's what we say. We need to be clear on this. We're declaring the gospel. You may share part of your faith, but ultimately there's a declaration of the gospel. That's what we're concerned about. He says, enter. This is something that's demanded of you. And then he tells you where to enter. Enter by the narrow gate, and then he contrasts two gates. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many of those who enter by it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there's few who find it. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, a specific gate. Ultimately, it's what he's saying, it's the only gate. It's the correct gate. John Stott writes this, there are not many roads to heaven but one. There are not many good religions but only one. Man cannot come to God in any way that man devises, but only in the one way that God himself has provided. When you and I come to deal with a holy God, it's important for us to understand this is not something that's open to negotiation. Jesus doesn't come along and say, okay, give my way a try, and if that doesn't work, there's other options out there. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The definite article, the way, no other way, the life, no other life. This is it, the truth, there is no other truth. And as if we might have missed it, he says, no one can come to the Father except through me. John 10, 19, I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. Peter utters these words that are recorded in Acts 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we may be saved. Paul writes this, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. When Jesus speaks of the narrow gate, Jesus is talking about the narrow gate that leads to life. And the context always in this conversation is life Life here, but ultimately life eternal. What do I do have to go to heaven? Those kinds of questions. It was the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked that question. What do I have to do to go to heaven? And Jesus says, obey all the commandments. The rich young ruler said, I did all that. And Jesus said, okay, Luke 18, 22, one thing you still lack, sell your possessions, distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And his response was this. When he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. 
What Jesus is doing there is not just stripping him of his possessions. Uh, Christianity is not a religion or a faith that demands poverty. Jesus isn't teaching salvation by philanthropy. We've talked about this before. Jesus is not saying, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to give everything away. By definition, the minute I give it away and give it to you, now, I, now you're cursed. So it's like the thing that kids used to have, that time bomb. We're just passing our stuff around and hope we don't hold it when we die. That doesn't make any sense. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, there's a narrow, demanding, hard way. It includes repentance. Now begin to begin, and listen, sometimes you just, you don't even need much background. Just read it. Let it say what it says in terms of this contrast. He, he describes two gates. See it? One is a narrow gate. One is a wide gate. Uh, the narrow gate is easy. It's attractive. It's appealing. I would say it's inclusive. It's permissive. The narrow gate is, is, is just that. It's narrow and it's demanding. When you start to hear about Jesus is the only way, you ought to have a flinch to that if you're not a Christian. You ought to respond to that. I, I, there was a lady, I think it was two weeks ago now, maybe three weeks ago after church. It was the 11 o'clock service. So there was nothing, I mean, I didn't have to move on to the next deal. And she came up and she accosted me, essentially. And her, her issue was something that I had said. She said that I was, uh, I, don't, I don't remember all the words, but, but narrow-minded and, and, and very exclusive and insensitive to other people. Well, I don't think I am. Uh, um, I think God is. I think God's narrow-minded. I think, I think God is very exclusive. And if I'm going to, and, and, and by me, I don't mean this person, I mean if, if I, me, you, all of us, if we're going to follow him, we're by definition going to be on a narrow way. And let me point out something else he says. On this broad way, there are a lot of people on it. On the narrow way, there aren't many people. And that's an evolution of my thought. When I was a non, when I was a non-believer, I wasn't a Christian, I thought, everybody goes to heaven. I mean, okay, there's a couple of exceptions. Hitler doesn't go to heaven. Uh, your ex-wife doesn't go to heaven. I mean, there's about 15 or 20 people, but everybody else is going to get there. Let's go. Then I became a Christian. I thought, well, no, not everybody's going to go. So it's a little more. And then I thought, and, this is, and I admit this is faulty thinking, but I thought, well, it's like the PGA Tour. Okay, they're going to have 140 teed up on Thursday. They're going to cut down to 70 in ties on, on Friday night. And that's what heaven's like. Everybody kind of tees it up and about half of them get there. And, and I can't, you can't make judgments and we're not God. We got that. Okay. But he tells you. There's a broad, he's, well, you get this picture in your mind. Do a word picture on this. Just picture these two arches here. And this is a broad, easy way. It says, you come on. Come on in here, all of you. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter what you... Do the best you can do. Come on down this road. And here's a road that says, listen, this is very narrow and very demanding. There's nothing you can do. It's all going to be done by Christ. This is a three, four lane highway with a lot of people on it. And the scripture says, this, this is, there's not a bunch of people over here. A lady that came up after church, her, her, her fundamental error in thinking was this my mind. She said, I believe this Bible's true for me, but I can't speak for everybody else. Now, here's the problem with that. It's either true or it isn't. 
2 plus 2 is 4 for everybody. Here's the problem we have. God is, a, is an objective truth, not a subjective truth. If I say to you, okay, right now, uh -huh, and, and we won't take a poll, this is unnecessary, okay, we would say to you, how, how many of you are cold, okay, and, 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 you know, some hands would go up. Women, I would hope, not a guy. No guy ought to be cold in here, okay. But, but how many of you are cold, okay, some hands would go up. If I said, how many of you are hot, some hands would go up. If I said to you, how many are just right, some hands would go up. Well, if I ask the question, who's right in that analysis, there's that sense in which you're all right. It's a subjective truth. I mean, do I look good? Some of you would say yes. Some of you would, the majority of you would say no. And others would say, well, okay, as good as you're going to look. Mrs. Schrader, Mrs. Schrader, has, her, her membership at her gym has expired. And this afternoon, at about 3.30, we are working out together for the first time. So this better go better than her first golf lesson. That's all I got to say for her. But she didn't get that very fast. So. Yeah, I know. It isn't going to work. But I'm trying. I'm on this new kick where I'm trying. Uh, so you look and you say, how does he look? It's subjective, okay? And I'm, and I'm okay with that. But if I say to you, is this wall here or not? And some of you say, well, I think it is. And it doesn't. Then I can say to you, no, you're wrong. Look at it. Do you hear it? It's here. It's true. When we're dealing with God, it doesn't matter. This is very important. It doesn't really matter what you think he is. It doesn't matter what you think about whether this partition is here. It's here. See that? God's an objective truth. Now, what you have in this world is, I was just at Borders uh, for a, a while today, looking, trying now to organize my summer reading. What do I want to read on vacation? And so I'm just, I take, that takes a lot of time to think through. So, I, and, I'm, and I'm in this section and there's just walls, literally walls of spirituality. But, and, and, and they have all sorts of concepts of God. We cannot from that say that God, therefore, is all these different concepts. Especially, and this is what we would say at East, at, at East Valley Bible Church, but this is what we'd say at Priority Living, that this is the inherently true Word of God. So it really doesn't, I mean, I don't mean this offensively at all. It really doesn't matter what you think. It's that he is. After Billy Graham did a crusade in, in Melbourne, Australia, someone wrote this letter to the editor. They wrote this. After hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air and viewing him on television and reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, I am sick of the type of religion that insists on my soul and everyone else's soul needs saving, whatever that means. I've never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although preaching seems to insist that I do. Give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers aged, teach children of goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy as I have heard preached recently, I prefer to remain forever damned. Permission granted, I would assume. I don't know. Again, I know how judgmental that sounds. All I'm saying is, you see, see, that ought to be the response that you have. If you're here for the first time, or if you're here all the time, it doesn't matter, you don't have to be there for the first time, and, and you've never come to grips with this, this is a sense 
fingers in a chalkboard. I will tell you the first time I heard it, when I heard somebody talk about the narrow way, I got to tell you, it was fingers in a chalkboard to me. I said, I don't buy that for a second. I'm out of here. And, and this guy had invited me over his house just simply to talk about Jesus is the only way. And that he didn't even get to the gospel. He got to Jesus is the only way. And I said, I'm done. Let's have dessert fast because I'm history. I'm gone. I don't buy it. I don't believe it. So you ought to have a response to that. That's what he's saying. It's a narrow way. It's a demanding way. It's an exclusive way. It ought to produce in your mind all sorts of questions. What about those people who never hear? What about those people who don't quite get the presentation as well as you get it? What about those people uh, who are children, who are raised in an environment where they don't... What about all them? I can give you my view on them, but do you understand that's an irrelevant comment? What about you? You've heard, Jesus says it's a narrow way. I believe him, because I believe it's true. Then he issues the warning. He says this, beware of false prophets. It's a warning that says, look out, be on your guard. Watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He's saying, in essence, as you try to enter by the narrow gate and walk on that narrow way that leads to life, watch out for those that are going to mislead you. Watch out for those that are going to point to this other gate. By the way, this big, wide gate, it's not marked hell. Nobody thinks they're going to hell. You might know some weird, eccentric person who says, I don't care. But most everybody that even thinks about this thinks they're going to heaven. Even the person that says, all i got to do to be good. Even the person that's judging this, saying, I don't believe this. They don't say, I don't believe this, so I'm going to hell. They say, I don't believe that. And after all, God's a God of love. I mean, let's reason here together. God's a God of love, isn't he? And how could a loving God send somebody to hell forever? Where's the love in that? See, and that's how they reason. And then they say, so I must be okay somehow because they'll take God and they'll disproportionately emphasize one attribute, his love, at the expense of his justice. Let me flip that love thing around on you. What kind of a just God would let unrepentant sinners in heaven? See how that works? We begin to take him as a God. Watch out for the false prophets. And they're going to come along. They're in sheep's clothing. Here's what he's saying. They're, they look like, they walk like, they dress like pastors, teachers. They carry Bibles. They're, they're known in the scripture under these terms. False brothers, false apostles, false teachers, false speakers, false witnesses. Even false Christ. Jesus said this, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will lead, mislead many. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. And so to mislead if possible even the elect. When Jesus was roaming this earth and he was the Messiah, there were others who were claiming to be Messiah. There's, there's always false prophets. There's always Messiah. What Jesus is talking, false messiahs, what Jesus is talking about here is you figuring out these false prophets. It goes right in line. We talked about it last week. Probably the most familiar verse in our culture, even to those who don't know the Bible, is Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge lest you be judged. Well, obviously, I've got to understand that Jesus just says that, but he's telling me right here in verse 15, I better be judging. 
I better have my guard up. I better beware of false prophets. How am I going to judge if somebody's a false prophet? I must be able to distinguish between the true prophet and the false prophet. That's why the old, old, old story is such a, a great application. The story of the person that's being trained to be a bank teller. And now they're at the end of the training and the story is in the newspaper that somebody's passing counterfeit $20 bills. So on this last day of training, that guy that's going in to be trained to be a teller says, Hey, there's counterfeits coming into the city. When are you going to show us the counterfeit so we'll recognize it? And they said, We're not going to. We're going to show you the real thing so that when the counterfeit comes along, you won't miss it. I have friends who say, Okay, I'm going to take whatever faith it is. You fill it out. And there you say, I'm going to take this and I'm going to study it so I can counter my friend's teaching with it and I'm going to be able to talk to my friend about it. I've never been a big fancy person of that. I, I just don't get that. Okay? Here's what I'd do. I'd study this so that when somebody came to me, I would know the false teaching. Listen, I'll be really honest with you, and most of you already know this. There are probably a couple dozen people, maybe more in this room, who just know this word better than I do. They know the Greek, they know the history, they know the word. They've graduated from seminary, they're pastors. There's probably two dozen people in this room who know this stuff better than I do. If you want to come running up afterwards and play Stump Tom, it's an easy thing to do. Okay? That's not a hard thing to do. And I'm very open about it. I'll tell you what you won't do, though. You won't catch me with bad doctrine. You're not going to stump me. Because even though you've got some chapter and verse and you got something, when I hear it, I know the real thing well enough that I'm just going to say to you, that, 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 that's not right. I may need some time, but that's not right. These false prophets are in sheep's clothing. That means they're in the fold. As Paul is saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus, he says this, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They come in from among themselves, they will arise, speaking perverse things. Therefore, be on the alert. Jude writes this, certain people have crept in unnoticed. Those who long beforehand were marked out for condemnation, they're ungodly people who turned the grace of our God into license and they deny our only Master and Lord. He says, beware, watch out. Wolves are known to be merciless, ferocious. They're ravenous. They're there to destroy. They're clever. They're looking for victims. Watch out. Watch out for these false prophets. What's interesting is, if you read most of the Christian literature today, and you say, who's the enemy? Most people would say, if they read, it's the ACLU, it's Planned Parenthood, it's Hollywood, it's the media. Jesus doesn't say, watch out for Hollywood. He doesn't even say, watch out for those guys out there. He says, watch out for the guys in here. Here's what he's saying. You're going to go ending up with churches where you got guys in pulpits and God forbid women in pulpits you're going to end up with churches where you got Sunday school teachers and you're going to end up with churches where you got worship leaders and people in worship and you're going to have people in these positions who are false prophets who are teaching a false gospel so you better know what the real thing is see that's why we say to you over and over again this isn't church Okay? What we do here, this isn't church. 
If, and some of you make the mistake of treating it like church. You, you, I've had people say to me, what you do here on Thursday noon is my church. And immediately I say to them, you got issues, my friend, because this isn't church. It's not designed to be a church. This is a tool. In your bag, this is the five iron. This is one club that you can use and maybe talk to your friends or get something that fill in some gaps. But if you've got to choose between this and church, you ought to get out of here and never come back if you can't do both. If you're sitting there today and saying, this replaces church, you've got a problem. You need to be in church. Now that raises a question. What kind of church? There's so many churches. We think it's unique, by the way. Uh, golly, almost 20 years ago now, we were in New Guinea at a pastor's conference. And, we're, and, and this shows you, and these are natives. These guys, uh, probably uh, 200 guys, probably 25 or 30 of them had shoes. Some of them had paddled through uh, canoes, through jungles and swamps for two or three weeks to get to this conference. It was really interesting because one of the speakers, or four or five of us, and one of the speakers was Franklin Graham. So they're up there and they're, and they're, and they're saying, uh, our speaker today is Franklin Graham, and they're just sitting there and they go, this is Billy Graham's son, and everybody, all of a sudden, here are these natives. He, Ooh. That's exactly it. Ooh. The first question, the first night of open forum, first question of the whole night. This guy, barefoot guy, living in the jungle, puts up his hand and says, Why are there so many churches here? And how can we get our kids to not be interested in, in alcohol and girls? I thought, man, this is, i just feeling like I'm home again. I mean, that's the home again argument. Well, why are there? Because a lot of these churches are bad, false churches. You need to find a church. Well, how do you find a church? Well, you find a good church where the scripture's taught, especially as it relates to salvation, especially as it relates to... I was thinking today, I've never, ever thought I could write a book, but I got a title today at the bookstore. What's wrong with man and how God fixes it? What's wrong with man? Well, it's sin. How does God fix it? Through Christ and Christ alone. These false teachers, and I just want they're, they're, they are not appearing as sheep. They're appearing as shepherds. And they're clothed to look like good shepherds. But they're not genuine. They're false. You have to know the real thing. That's how you begin to spot them. And what Jesus does is say you're going to know them ultimately. They're going to see their colors by their fruit, what they produce. Look at verse 16. You'll know them, speaking of these false prophets, you'll know them by their fruits. Verse 20. So then you'll know them by their fruits. Well, in that section, what Jesus is saying is a, is a rose bush produces roses, not tulips, and a cherry tree produces cherries, not grapes. A false prophet will ultimately be seen for who he or she really is, for teaching something other than the truth. We have in our backyard, it's become infamous because it supplies so many illustrations, this orange tree that produces ornamental oranges. They are good for 
looking at, smelling, and cleaning up. They have no other function that I can see. And the first year we moved in there, there were thousands of them on this tree, literally. And they looked good. And I went out and picked one, and I brought it in. And Susan said, don't eat that. And I said, why? And she said, it's an ornamental orange. And I said, well, what does that mean? She said, well, it's just to look at. Really. And she had an orange there. And when you set them down, a, a, an orange from the grocery store and an ornamental orange, they looked very similar. In fact, the ornamental orange looked better. But when you cut it, it was just rotten and really, I don't even know what they call it, just, just yucky on the inside. You couldn't possibly eat it. See, a false prophet looks really good on the outside, but when you cut it, all of a sudden you see that they don't really teach the Word of God. They tell you a way of salvation that may not, in fact, at all be true. And i tell you what they do, by the way. They clothe themselves most often in love. I love you. I care for you. We're the church that loves. We're the church where love grows, love expands, love, 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 love. We got love all over the place. Love, 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 love. Because that's, don't you want to be love? All you need is love. Everybody needs love. That's what I keep hearing. Everybody wants love. So love is there. And I slide in the love. But what happens is I slide in the love and I don't get in the justice, the wrath, the mercy of God. So I got a whole church based on a distorted view of God and God's love. I don't talk about the cross. Do you know to talk about Christianity and not talk about the cross is, in a sense, not to talk about Christianity at all? Christianity is the cross. Christianity is Christ. Christianity is His death. Christianity isn't just loving your neighbor. Obviously, that's part of it. Here's what they're saying. You're going to know these people by their fruits. You're going to know them by what they teach, and you may even know them best by what they don't teach. Now, Jesus comes to a very scary part of Scripture, I think. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These are people who are saying, Jesus is Lord. They're acknowledging him as Lord. I, it seems to be that there has in there the idea of some sense of who he is, or at least some sense of treating him as such. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day. That day is a general reference to a, a time of divine judgment. It's talked about the day of the Lord, some day of judgment. Many will say to me on that day, okay, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? And in your name, did we not perform many miracles? See what's going to happen? allow me this because this is not the way it unfolds but imagine that at the end of your life Jesus is saying to you why should I lay you into heaven these people are saying because of what I did look at what I did we're casting out demons we're doing great things there were a lot of works did they really do this we don't know we don't know if they imagined this we don't know if they dreamt this we don't know if they made it up we don't know if they really did it through the power of Satan we don't know if God did something we don't know all we know is they said here Look at what we did. And Jesus utters these extraordinarily harsh, judgmental, exclusive, damning words. Depart from me, I never knew you. Obviously, it doesn't mean no in an intellectual sense. He certainly knew who they were. He knew what they were all about. He's God. He's saying, I didn't have an intimate relationship with you. 
I, I did not have an intimate relationship. You depart. You, you depart from me. I never knew you. Imagine that. In other words, there are people around who are doing a bunch of stuff, but they aren't really Christians at all. We have 15 uh, messages in this tape series. So that means we have eight tapes with a blank on the other side. We're going to put on the other side of that, so the tape will be next week, genuine marks of saving faith. And we excerpted this from, from, from John MacArthur's study Bible. What we do in the first half is say, you may have these things present in your life, but they don't mean that you're a Christian. Right? And here's some of them. Religious activity, uh, uh, ministry involvement, conviction of sin. You may be able to point to a time and say, I had a time where I accepted Christ. Even the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association will render numbers something like this. If 100 people walk forward in a crusade, only 10 are converted. Now, I'll guarantee you those other 90, I know people well enough to know, those other 90, when you sit down with them and you say you're a Christian, you say, you bet, back at a Billy Graham crusade, I walked an aisle. Hell is going to have people in it, I assume you understand this, that have walked an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade. Hell's going to have in it people who asked Jesus into their heart when they were five. Now, all of these things we're talking about should be evident in your life. If you're a Christian, they will be. But because they're present, it doesn't mean you're a Christian. Do you see that? Did I make that clear? Do you see that distinction? So you can have religious activity all over the place. We all know somebody who's been very involved in religious activity, who's led Sunday school classes, pastors who've blown out, whatever it is. Uh, and all of a sudden, they just blow out on a spouse or they do whatever. Here are the marks of genuine Christianity. You don't need to write them down because they'll be on that tape, okay? That I love God, that I repent from my sin, that I'm humble, that I'm committed to God's glory, that there's a selfless love in my life, that I'm separated from the world's value system, that there's spiritual growth, that I'm obedient, that I'm continually in this attitude of prayer. There's something different is what we're saying to you. Is that present in your life? See, when I'm standing before Jesus in this hypothetical situation, and I start line listing, well, boy, you should have seen priority living, and you should have seen this, and you should have seen that. He's going to go, eh. If I'm in heaven, it's for this reason. Not because I deserve it. Not because I've earned it, but by His grace. It's by an understanding that I'm a sinner. Let's just, let me check time here. We have 13 minutes. Let's make sure we get this right today. I'm a sinner. I presume you're all going to say yes to that. I presume that, that, that there's enough empirical data in your life, enough people around that we can get an amen to that in your life that you're a sinner. I assume that somewhere at least once you sinned. So at that point, I'm a sinner. What the Bible says is that the wage of sin is death, which means it separated me from God. But the free gift through Christ Jesus is eternal life. That means that I believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that I respond in repentance and brokenness to my sin, and I trust Christ and Christ alone, and I, acknowledge, I don't make him Lord, he is Lord. I acknowledge him for who he is, Lord of all, King of kings. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, because I'm a Christian, there'll be all those other things. There'll be religious activity, and my life will change. We see that all over time. It is so great. You just talk to people. That's the neat thing about having done this for a long time. 
You know, one of the great things about hanging in here, we've been out 11 or 12 years now, is we now have two and three, four generations of people at tables. People who have brought people, who have brought people, who have brought people. These studies now have people in them who walked in here and they can relate to what I said at the beginning. Because when they were done, they were up here in my face saying, you're full of it. And they sent me the emails. I get that kind of stuff all the time. I assume you know that. Okay? And they'll come at me and it'll be a personal attack. But in reality, what I've learned is they're not really attacking me. They just don't want to deal with this right here. And now God's changed their life. You know what? We got a boat. I'm talking to a guy one day and he said, you know what? I used to just swear and swear and swear. All I did was cuss and swear. And he said, all of a sudden, one day, after receiving Christ as my Lord and Savior, all of a sudden, about a year later, I realized I don't even cuss anymore. And he said, I've been trying to get rid of that for 13 or 14 years. I'm just telling you, if you're a Christian, your life will change. If it doesn't change, you better wonder. If you've been a Christian in your mind for 10 years and there's no life change, you're at the same level, something's wrong with you. Not me, not us, not God. You, something's wrong with you. That's why when they say the divorce rate among Christians and the rest of the world is the same, there's no way. It may be the same among churchgoers and non-churchgoers, but to think that everybody in a church is a Christian is silly. By the way, here's the way they ask that question. X percentage of Baptists have a divorce. Well, wait a minute. Maybe they had that divorce before they were a Christian. Did we ever think to ask that type of a question? There, this room, let's do it. We haven't done this in so long. I love to do this. We haven't done it in so long. This will be great. How many of you, and don't you be embarrassed. You just flop your hand right in the air. How many of you became a Christian after age 18? Let's see your hand. Look around the room. Look at, look at that. It just gives me goosebumps. Okay, these are my kind of people. Put your hands up one more time, if you would. Because these are all the really bad sinners right here. These are all the ones right here that can tell you the stories. They're the ones that can tell you the good ones, okay? But, but you see all those people? I've noticed that at Priority Living Studies in our church, we tend to attract those kind of people. I'll tell you why. I think those people are the people that tend to be most serious about their faith. It's not to judge the rest of you. I'm not saying you aren't. I'm just saying, you know what, those people, they got such a clear view of how sinful they are. They can go to a class reunion and hear it over and over again. Okay? And they understand what they've been saved from. You got old Billy Joe, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because the sinners are lots more fun. That's a very distorted view of God. That's like, I'm, that's like in hell, I, I just can never make the eight ball, that that's what hell is. Okay? It's eternal suffering, it's torment, it's separation from God and anger and anguish forever. Getting hot today, isn't it? People coming in today say you're getting hot. But you know what I hear people say every time? I was like, it's hot today. Here's what I hear all the time. Only got to put up with it for three months. Boy, once we get to late September, it'll be great again. Now, there's nobody in hell going, only got to put up with it for three months. or three years, or three centuries, or three millennia. I'm here forever. That's what he's saying. 
Depart from me, I never knew you. Now apparently these were people who were around. Here's the illustration. We got, ooh, jeepers, seven minutes. Therefore, look at verse 24 and verse 26. Let's compare them again. won't spend a lot of time on it. I think it's self-evident. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built a house on rock. Okay? Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words and doesn't act on them may be compared to the foolish man who built his house on sand. So here's two guys building a house. It, we get the sense that the same general location, the same type of construction material, they're building houses. They're both going to be tested. The only difference between these houses is one's built on rock, one's built on sand. Verse 25, the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and they burst against the house, yet it did not fall for it was founded on a rock. In the other one, verse 27, the rains descend, the floods came, the winds blew, burst against the house and it fell. Why? It was built on sand. So he says this, you're either a wise man or a foolish man. The wise man hears the word of God and responds. The foolish man hears the word of God and is disobedient. And their whole house will one day come tumbling down. Tumbling down. It's imagery. There will be a great fall. It leads right back to what he's talking about when he's talking about a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. Now... And it's unfair because we've taken, you know, 15 weeks or whatever to go through this. Jesus sits down and delivers this in, in one sitting, obviously, to him. And here's the reaction, verse 28. The result was when Jesus finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. The scribes were one who said, here's what others said. Jesus said, here's what I say. In fact, remember when we saw that? Remember, we saw that back in chapter 5, verse 21. He said, here's what the ancients said, but I say to you. Here's what the ancients told you, but here's what I say to you. He's not talking about Moses. He's talking about, here's what the scribes and Pharisees taught you. They had taught you all those things, but here's what I'm saying to you. They were astounded. They were amazed. They were dumbfounded. They'd never heard anything like that before. You know what alarms me about that account? It doesn't say that they believed. It's just that they went, ooh. It's just that they went, wow. Maybe that's you. We got all sorts of shapes and sizes in this room. We got old men and we got young men and we got older women and younger women. We got fat people and thin people and smart people and stupid people. We got people well-dressed. We got people not dressed so well. We got some of you that got a boatload of money and we got some of you that don't have two coins to rub together. But we got only two types of people in God's eyes. Those that are his kids and those that aren't. Those that are on the narrow way and those that are on the broad way. So here we go. We'll apply it away. we got three minutes left. Which road are you on? And you know what? If you're on that broad road, you can stop, get off, and enter by the narrow gate. Jesus is not giving you here a bunch of suggestions. Jesus is telling you to act. Do you see that? Are you one of those people that just come and you listen to this stuff and you say, that's really good, that's really amazing? That's not enough. Do you believe? Every once in a while, I'll get an email or somebody saying, how come you don't do an altar call? How come you don't have people come forward or raise their hands or make a decision? 
Okay? I have some personal just issues there. But this isn't about you coming forward and us trying to justify and let everybody see what's going on. This is between you and God. There's a sense, and please understand this when I say it. I shouldn't even say it. I'll go ahead. There's a sense, and I know I'm going to get killed in this, but there's a sense in which I don't care if you respond. And by that I mean I'm not going to change this to make you respond. If all of a sudden we're measuring response, there's such a temptation to change this. I don't want to change it. This is between you and God. This isn't about me. It's not about us. It's about you, between you and God. Do you understand that? Do you understand this? I don't want you walking out that door saying, gee, I don't know where he stands. <laughs> I know that's unlikely, but I just want to make sure that you're not confused by this. Okay? I don't want you grappling with what I'm doing here. I want you to figure out, are you on the narrow way? What have you done with your sin? Get us, here you go. Think about, all I'm just going to ask you to do is think. Think about how offensive your sin is to God. Think about when somebody offends you or somebody hurts you. And, and you're an imperfect human being. Now we sin against a holy, righteous God. He's offended. And contrary to what you read, there's anger, and there's wrath, and there's judgment, but there's also love. I've, I've kind of whacked love around today. I don't want to diminish that at all. God is a God of love. How much does He love you? Come. Repent and come. If this makes sense to you today, and all of a sudden you're going, you know what, that makes sense to me, let me tell you why. The Holy Spirit's opening your eyes. Come. What does it mean to come? It means you sit, you can sit right where you are. You do business with Him. You tell God, listen, I'm a sinner, I'm separated from you by my sin, and I accept Christ and Christ alone, and I repent from this sin, and by your grace and your mercy and your strength, my life will change. And one of the hallmarks of that is, you'll get your chubby little cheeks into a Bible teaching church. It may be here, it may be wherever. It doesn't matter. And all of a sudden, you'll get into His Word. And all of a sudden, you'll love Him. And you'll want to love Him more. And you'll want to know about Him. And you'll want to know who He is. See, that's how you're going to know Him. You're going to have to communicate to Him. It's interesting to watch, because I've watched Tyler and Haley. You've got 30 seconds here. And I've watched them. And I've watched them grow in their love for other. And, and, they, and at first, they, they kind of would just call. She, he'd call. Then they'd talk a little bit. And then they started going out. And then they'd talk more and more and more. And after about three or four months, I said to Haley, how much is there to talk about? All you do is talk. You guys, he talk all day, all night. He this is the truth. He leaves, and her cell phone rings. And I go, uh, well, what are you doing? What is he doing? She's sitting with, she's right here. She told him what she was doing 30 seconds ago. And finally I said to her, I said, Haley, the only way to stop this is to marry him, that I can see. That'll shut that communication right off. Okay? Driving me crazy, this will stop it. Boom, marry the guy. But see, with God, that's the way it is. And some of you, we got to go, some of you sadly say, I remember when I was on fire for Christ. You don't have to remember it. Why aren't you on fire today? You telling me that after 10 years of walking with Him, you don't know Him more, and you don't love Him more, and you haven't seen Him work more? How can you not be more in love with Him today than you were then? And you ought to be as on fire today as then. You ought to be more on fire today then. It's a sad thing, isn't it? That's because this is work. That's the truth. What I just told you, by the way, is the truth.
Because I didn't say it. That's what Jesus said. And that's between you and him. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, talk to the person that invited you. Talk to the person who brought you here. Call this church. People at North Phoenix Baptist Church would love to talk to you about what it means to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Next week we start a new series. We'll spend uh, seven or eight weeks in it. The series is titled, How to Stay Afloat in a World That's Circling the Drain. So we'll spend seven or eight weeks on that. Father, help us see this truth and apply it to our life. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.